This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, where I dissect serial killers and analyze what I find. Happy 4th of July. Technically, it's happy 5th of July. And since it is a holiday weekend, the Queen took the weekend off. But I still have a little something for you today. It is an older episode. It is about the Reigns brothers, who are brothers that killed, but not together. It's a repeat episode from earlier in the season. I thought the case was extremely interesting, and I think you will too. So in case you missed it, here it is again for you. This will be the final episode in the Families That Murdered Together series that I've been doing forever. I'll be discussing the Reigns brothers. We'll jump into that here in a moment. First, I would like to thank Igor, as always, my socially distant assistant and immoral support. Last episode was actually an Igor-only episode about the thug cult. So that was exciting to uh, let Igor have her time out of the dungeon. We also, last night, recorded an episode together. So that's exciting. And that will be coming out next Monday. It's since I recorded that before I recorded this, I talk about how I'm getting the Reigns Brothers episode out. So I forgot I was going to be coming out with the Reigns Brothers episode before I come out with that episode. So there's that. It's uh, hard to think linearly in the podcast world, depending on when you film your episodes. So that's something to something to uh, keep in mind. But it'll be exciting. We'll come out with that next week and we'll do some more episodes together. And then she has some more episodes that will just be her. So every once in a while, we'll have an Igor-only podcast. To keep up on that stuff and then also merch and everything else, make sure you check out Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for all kinds of updates. And make sure that you subscribe and share and share, share, share with your friends and enemies. I don't care. Just share. I have a real quick update. I know in a recent episode, I told you about my mom finding a serial killer in the pages of People magazine. So she found another one. And uh, this is actually from the January 25th edition. So it's a little bit, it's about a month old. But still, in case you have not heard, Retta Mays was targeting veterans at a veterans hospital. So a man checked in. It was something fairly minor. They were told that he, his family was told he would go home the following Monday. The night before he was discharged, his blood sugar mysteriously dropped. No one could explain it because he's not diabetic. The medical staff tried to fix the blood sugar, the glucose levels, but he died on April 10th with his wife, three children, a son-in-law, and pastor at his side. Three months later, his widow answered the door and found FBI agents on her porch. They wanted to exhume his body because they didn't think he died from natural causes. A year later, she learned that her husband had been murdered and he was not the first or last veteran to fall victim to the serial killer on Ward 3A. An extensive investigation spanned two years and included more than 250 interviews and hundreds of pieces of evidence. They found out nursing assistant Retta Mays, age 46, was the culprit. July 14, 2020, Mays pleaded guilty to seven counts of second-degree murder and one count of assault with intent to murder an eighth victim by, by injecting each with lethal, unprescribed doses of insulin. The U.S. government settled a civil suit naming Mays and blaming oversight failures at the VA hospital for a similar death of a ninth patient. 
and additional suits are pending. She faces multiple life terms in prison when she is sentenced next month. The VA has since replaced its hospital director, which is good. People aren't sure what triggered that killing spree. It was just over a period of a year. She was a married mother with three sons and a former corrections officer who served in non-combat roles in Iraq and elsewhere with the Army National Guard. She did tell a judge that she was taking medication for post-traumatic stress disorder. She was hired at the VA hospital in June 2015, and her job was to record patients' vital signs, test blood sugar levels, and sit with those who required close observation. She had no authority to dole out medicine, including insulin. Reportedly, there were no surveillance cameras when she injected insulin into her first victim. So he ended up dying the next afternoon. Then someone aged 89 died in January 2018. An 84-year-old died in March. Three more men, aged 96, died in April. A seventh victim was 88. He died June 2018. The same month, a hospital doctor raised concerns to a supervisor, quote, about the deaths of patients who had suffered unexplained hypoglycemic episodes on Ward 3A, according to prosecutors. One family alleged in a civil complaint that even before Snyder alerted the VA's Office of Inspector General, and I quote, emergency department staff openly commented that if patients were admitted to floor 3A, they would die. May's nickname on the floor was Angel of Death because her patients didn't seem to do well. So about that time, she was transferred out of patient care in July 2018, and then later she was fired from the hospital after they figured out, found out she had lied about her qualifications. Another victim died two weeks after Mays gave him unprescribed ins- insulin. A ninth victim, who was an 87-year-old, could not be autopsied because he was cremated. I will uh, look in to see if we have any more updates on that. But it's yet another case where you have someone in the medical field that decides to start killing people. Retta Mays. So the Reigns brothers didn't actually kill together. In the very first episode of Murder Lab, I covered landlords that killed their tenants. But I also included Earl Leonard Nelson, who liked to kill landladies. So he kind of flipped it. So I like to uh, to do the uh, vice versa and such. So it's fun to throw that in there as well. And so similarly, I've been doing families that kill together. So I thought it would be interesting to throw in, well, there are, the, there are these brothers that happened to kill, but they did not kill together. They just happened to both become serial killers. So it's a very interesting case, and I'm going to talk about it. We've got Danny Arthur Rains, who was born in October 1943. He was age 29 during his crimes. And we have Larry Lee Rains, who was born in March 1945, who was age 19 when he did his crimes. So you see the leap where it was almost 10 years apart. To give you the time period, Danny killed between March and September 1972. Larry killed between April, May of 1964. So you can see Larry started at age 19 and killed people in 1964. And then later in 1972, we've got Danny that killed. And it's also interesting that it was just a time period of a few months. So Danny was about six months and Larry was about like two, two, two and a half months. Danny killed four people. Larry killed five. They both lived in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Danny killed around Kalamazoo, but Larry went from Michigan to Indiana to Nevada to Kentucky. 
So he traveled around a little bit. The only book that I could find about these brothers is called Luke Karamazov by Conrad Hilberry. It came out in 1987. And he called everybody by different names for legal reasons. In the book, they were known as the Cyril brothers, Ralph and Tommy. Ralph is Larry Rains and Tommy is Danny Rains. I will be going by their actual real names and not the names in the book, which that's kind of a mind twist for me because I read, about, I read the book first. So I got them in my brain as Ralph and Tommy. So when I was doing the additional research online... It was messing with my mind. I couldn't remember which one was Danny. I had to like have it written down and next to me. So I figure since their real names are the Reigns, that's what we're going to go with. Conrad Hilberry was an English professor that lived in Kalamazoo. And that's why he decided to write the book. It was right there. It was pretty fresh. And so he's like, I'm going to jump on this. And, and he actually, the book, he interviews both of them. So we get to see things that they both say. Hilberry does note, quote, I am aware that in reproducing Karamazov's own account of his life, I permit him to color the events he, as he chooses. As we will see, part of the interest in his history lies in this very coloring. So as I've said before several times, is whether or not we can trust what a serial killer is saying to us, it's always interesting to see what they do say and what they leave out and how they color things. So I thought that was interesting that he, uh, he brought that up in there. The reason that book is called Luke Karamazov is because Larry changed his name in prison to Monk Steppenwolf. But again, trying to keep everything changed for legal reasons, the writer Hilberry decided he would say that he changed it to Luke Karamazov, and, and that's where that all came from. Most of my reference material will come from that book, but I did cross-reference and double-check details and, and, and add details and stuff as we go. So for the most part... What I talk about will be from the book. There were four Reigns kids, an older sister, Danny, then Larry, they were a year apart, and then a sister that was four years younger than Larry. Larry remembers getting in rock fights and walking precariously on the railroad trestle over the river. <laughs> I enjoyed that note because it reminded me of Mac and Charlie on It's Always Sunny, specifically the Christmas episode where they're throwing rocks at trains. It was a very Mac and Charlie moment. Danny and Larry were close, but Larry felt a distance between himself and his siblings. He felt that Danny and his oldest sister were inseparable, but the youngest sister was too young to really be part of everything. Their dad, and I quote, a strong man in spite of a withered arm, drove a semi-truck. The reason he had a withered arm is he had been shot through the wrist and had a big crater in it in a sh from a shotgun accident when he was 12 years old. One day, perhaps drunk, he ran over the family dog in the truck. Larry said, and I quote, The other kids were more terrified, more upset than I was. I remember I looked at the other kids and thought, how could they be so attached to a dog to cry, you know, or have a tantrum? I remember being in wonder how the other kids could be so attached. So I feel like that says a lot right there of him as a kid. Their mom worked from 3 to 11 p.m. so that she was hardly home with the family. Larry felt she was not equipped to be a mom, so he didn't invest emotion in her. And he blamed her for his ears sticking out. His uncle once told him it was because when he was small, his mom made him wear a cap and put it on wrong so it folded his ears. Larry remembers his dad having him and his brother drink whiskey in one gulp to prove they were a man. He would push a snapping turtle at them the whole time, you know, goading them and telling them what, telling them what it would do to them. He would also, if they didn't obey quickly enough, he'd become enraged and whip his belt out. So he was a very volatile, hostile presence. 
One time, their mom failed to wake the kids when Larry was six or seven. He remembers going to his parents' room, finds his mom with her hair matted with blood. Blood was everywhere in the bedroom. The room was a mess. Their dad had broken her nose and broken both of her lips open because she failed to wake the kids up. He was always fighting, drunk, picking up women as if to prove he was a real man. He did leave the family when the boys were ages 9 and 10. He went to Florida and got remarried and started a gas station. The boys would hitchhike there to go see him, but it wasn't working out. Dad wanted nothing to do with them, and his new wife agreed. There's a letter in there, and I really think you should read it because it is interesting. There's a letter that they show from the stepmom where she's like, I'm writing to you because he's not going to write to you, but you need to stay the fuck away. Like, he doesn't want you in the life. I don't want you in my life, so just stay away. And it's pretty heartbreaking. His dad had would create a ferocious competition between them. I've got a competition in me. That was my there will be blood reference. He literally had them fight over a quarter. Danny generally had the advantage, so Larry would be bitter and angry. So you can see that their whole childhood grew, grew they grew up being in this volatile, hostile atmosphere where they were always pitted against each other, and there really wasn't any good stability in there. They tended to date the same girls. Paula and a friend that they call Martha Gilman in the book, I'm not sure her real name, they took turns dating both of the guys in high school. Paula liked Larry more than Danny. She said, uh, Danny was more outgoing, always chasing some skirt. Larry was withdrawn. He sat by the window, a definite loner. Maybe he knew he had more to offer. Larry didn't pay much attention to her, though. (laughs) And at age 14 or 15, he started seeing Betty Fitzel. Again, I'm not sure that's the real name. But she was a married woman 10 years older than him with three kids. At 16, he quit school and Betty got divorced, so he moved in with her. He stole a car and got caught. He was given the option of juvenile home or army, so he chose the army on the day he turned 17. Of course, his army experience couldn't be normal and uneventful. Someone ate his chips, so he chased them around with knives. He stole a sergeant's gun. He actually wound up being able to keep it. Like, I guess he hid it, and that's the gun that he uses to kill people with later. There's a note here uh, from the writer of the book, Hillberry. He says that these are classic signs of his psychopathic personality. And I quote, Acts impulsively with no sense of own long-range comfort or safety. Or, again, he seems completely free of nervousness or anxiety, never deeply bothered by regret or shame, even when he has just been caught stealing or when he's telling me he extorted milk money from children on their way to school. In the episodes we have looked at, and especially in the ones to follow, we will see another characteristic quality, an almost incredible ability to charm people and inspire trust in them. As though they were enchanted, people treat him tenderly, hardly able to believe ill of him. So it reminds me a little bit of I just uh, in a recent episode did the Ripper Brothers and we had Robin Gecht where people would talk about being under his power under a spell. So again, we see an, a person who has this charisma about them where they're able to lure people in and, and get them to believe in them. When Larry came back from the army in 1963, he went back with Betty, but he was 19. So she wanted to go out to bars and hang out. And he couldn't go. So he'd say, you know what, just go ahead, go hang out in bars, I'll be here, I'll take care of the kids. Well, there was a huge fight before Christmas, and they broke up. He tried to commit suicide with a hose in his tailpipe, but a cop happened upon him minutes before it was too late. He spent two weeks in a mental hospital. Another note from Hillberry, the writer. Larry was always looking for a form of heroism worthy of his own importance. 
First, he was a young hoodlum, hoodlum doing whatever he wanted. Then in the army, he wanted to be a paratrooper, but wound up being a clerk. So he became a wild man with knives. And then afterwards, he wound up being the un unselfish, rejected lover. When the relationship didn't work out, it became, became this grand, dramatic thing where he has to end his life. So everything has to become this big to do. It had to be, everything had to be dramatic. When they were 18 and 19, Larry and Danny had a fight with a gun involved. Larry had just gotten out of the army. Interestingly enough, Danny was in the Navy. So again, you see there's competition where, so you go into that, I'm going to go into this, and we'll just see how everybody does where they are. So while Danny's in the Navy, Larry sleeps with Danny's fiance, but then they both dumped her. <laughs> Danny starts dating Paula and then goes back in the Navy. So of course, while Danny's in the Navy, Larry starts dating Paula. Larry shows up at Danny's and Danny kicks him in the nuts. Larry goes inside, gets a gun, wanting to scare him, and shoots past his ear. There's a wrestling match, and Danny leaves. Now, in Danny's version of this story, he found Larry with Paula and Martha Gilman, which Danny had both been seeing, so Larry had taken both the girls. However, Paula said she'd stay with Danny, and so did Martha. Larry got mad that Danny got all the women, so he comes outside saying he's gonna kill him, starts to swing, tries to kick Danny in the nuts, they fight a little, Danny kicks Larry in the nuts, and I'm not sure if their Rochambeau was called at any time. But then Larry cries, it happens two or three more times, then finally Larry gets tired of getting hit in the nuts, goes and gets a gun, shoots it at him, Danny charges him because he doesn't think it's real bullets. Larry, he's scared and worn out from being kicked so much, which that is a thing, like getting kicked in the nuts. I know that I'm being playful about it, but that, that's a damn thing. I imagine being worn out if you were kicked there several times. So he basically backs down and Danny's, as he's leaving, that's when he sees a bullet hole in the doorframe. So he realizes, oh, that was a real fucking bullet. <laughs> so you can see their fights weren't just like small wrestling matches or yelling at each other. It got kind of escalated. And regardless of which story is, um, so we have, in both cases, they do agree that Danny kicks Larry in the nuts. Of course, Larry doesn't say that it happens three times and that he cries. So that's an interesting, but the story basically, despite the details of what women are there, the basic fight lines up. Now, fast forward to April 6th, 1964. Battle Creek, Michigan, Vernon LeBen. He's either 20, 23, or 28 years old. He's an airman that worked part-time at the gas station. Larry took the man in the back, shot him with a 22, and stole $150. He tells Hillberry in one of the interviews, he remembers taking a technical interest in the killing, surprised, for example, quote, that the blood would shoot so far out of his head. He later found out the man was in a coma, and he felt better that the guy wasn't in pain, and he was relieved when the man died because he didn't, he says he didn't want the man to be in pain. He never wanted to hurt the guy. He just wanted to end his life and get what he wanted. So he claims that he took more care when shooting the next time. He hitchhiked, hitchhiked to Lexington, Kentucky, stole a car and drove to Manchester. He robbed a gas station, took attendant Charlie Sizemore to the back room and shot him. When he first shot him, it ricocheted off the skull. The guy's hand started to go into his pocket. Then Larry shot him again, and this time he died. He thought when the guy's hand went into his pocket that it was some kind of a convulsion, but it turned out the guy had a gun on his pocket. And I quote, I could have been dead. It's that simple. That's how incredibly naive I was. Maybe I was a naive kid, 
but it strikes me that I must have been following some prearranged, predetermined course that just didn't enter my mind there could be a deviation from. So this is another thing that we see commonly in serial offenders is this feeling of invincibility. And it just doesn't enter their minds that they could get in trouble. And if he's already killed one person and gotten away with it, then it's like, okay, apparently I'm meant to do this. So this is another a, a big indication that he feels this is the path he's meant to go down or this is a path that he this is the path that he has to go down. And there's also a big there's a lot of arrogance in that. So I want to know the specific killing in the time frame. I couldn't find an official date of when this happened because it wasn't tied to him until after he was caught. So like everything I was reading is he would say they knew he did these things and they say, oh, by the way, I did these other things. So I could not find a time frame. The only thing that makes me think it happened second is because of the time frames and the locations. He was in Michigan on April 6th and then May 23rd, he's in Death Valley, California. And then he goes from Death Valley, California back to Michigan. So I would think it would take days to travel across the country like that. I mean, unless it was like May 29th that he was going, he went through Kentucky, up through Indiana, you know, back to Michigan or something. It just makes more sense to me that there's plenty of time between April 6th and May 23rd that he had more time to be hitchhiking to Lexington and do this. So I can't guarantee that he is the second victim, but I'm pretty sure that that, that's what makes sense to me. At any rate, we do know that he did kill Charlie Sizemore in Lexington, Kentucky. So the next date, as I said, was May 23rd. He's in Death Valley, California. He was hitchhiking. He got picked up. The guy let Larry drive. But the guy kept saying he didn't have any money. And so it's the the lady doth protest too much. So, of course, Larry's like, okay, he just picked up somebody he doesn't know. And he's talking about how he doesn't have money. That means he probably has money. And he's just trying to throw me off the scent, which, you know, so he's like, I wouldn't have even thought about it. If he would not have mentioned money, I would have just moved forward. But since he made me think he had money, he shot him in the temple and kept driving. He eventually just left the body in the in the desert he was not found until November 1966. So this was one that was not known until after he confessed. No one had any idea until they found the body, until he confessed, and then the body was found two years later. We go from May 23rd in California, May 30th, back in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Gary Smock, who was known as Earl Foote in the book, with an E on the end. He's a 30-year-old school teacher that picked him up while hitchhiking in Kalamazoo. What's interesting is um, I, I had said that the person, Conrad Hilberry, who wrote the book, he's he actually works at the Kalamazoo College, and it's right across the street from where Larry pick, was picked up by the teacher that he killed. So that's kind of a chilling thing to have to think of every time you stop by that area. Larry pulled a gun, told his smock to drive through back roads, stole his shoes, watch, $3, and forced him into the trunk. He told him to be quiet, but then the guy started thumping. So he gets out, ties him up, shoots him in the head. He keeps going, stops at a hamburger stand, eats a hamburger and gets a Coke, and he uses some of the Coke to wash some blood off the car. The next day, May 31st, he drove to Elkhart, Indiana, near a gas station. He, he slept for a little bit. He woke up, decided to do some light robbing and killing of an attendant, Charles Snyder, and I saw it spelled S-N-I-D-E-R and S-N-Y-D-E-R. He had been shot twice in the head, also with a 22, and Larry made out with $100. After the cops learned of that robbery homicide, the police set up a roadblock Larry gets to the roadblock with Smock's body in the trunk, but he was calm and he got 
through the roadblock. This is what he had to say about it. I just didn't consider it a feasible thing that I could be caught. I don't know. State of mind, I guess. But I didn't do things to evade capture as such. I just did what was called for. You just don't sleep in a car with a stiff all night long if you're worried about being caught. So there's that arrogance and the feeling of nothing can go wrong. After the roadblock, the car broke down, he abandoned it, and a state trooper later found the car. In the meantime, Mrs. Gary Smock was in the police station. They didn't give her first name. That's how they described her. She was in the police station making a missing, missing persons report at the same time the officer called in the discovery of the car, and she said it sounded like her husband's car. He had been missing since the night before. From the items in the car, he was identified as the missing Gary Smock. He'd been shot in the head just below the ear, and the autopsy indicated that the bullet had come from a twenty-two. A cord was wrapped around one wrist as if he had been tied, and his shoes were missing. Later, it was determined that his watch was gone as well. The pathologist estimated that Smock had died within five minutes of the shooting, sometime between 6 a.m. Saturday and 2 p.m. that afternoon. Six days later, Larry was talking to Betty and a friend, and he said he had killed people. He was going to talk to a priest and commit suicide. The friend caught the cops. When they showed up, he confessed, and he was wearing the teacher's watch and shoes. He pled not guilty by reason of insanity, and several psychologists testified that he had committed murder during periods of temporary insanity that had occurred because of the rage against a father who beat him mercilessly. In fact, Rain's father had once been a gas station attendant, which supported the defense, as did the fact that his victims had resembled his father. Nobody bought it, and they found him guilty. So while Larry's in jail, do you remember Paula, the one that dated them both through high school? She took up with Danny, finished high school, got pregnant, and they got married. But she really wanted Larry, and they'd fight about it, amazingly enough. He found letters that they had written to each other from Larry to Paula and Paula to Larry. So once he beat her up, they fought over the kid, Danny went off. Then she found out Danny was in jail. Why was he in jail? He was going to go to Alaska, but decided on Wyoming. Somewhere around Colorado, he picked up a boy and girl that had a disabled car. He had a pistol, so he threatened them, tied up the boy, left him at the underpass, took the girl off and tied her up. Then all of a sudden he realized, oh, this could get me into some trouble. <laughs> so he untied them, took them to one of their houses and turned himself in. When asked why he did it, he told Paula he did it to see if she'd wait for him in jail and maybe if he went to jail, she'd care for him like she did his brother. Makes perfect sense. He got 18 months to two years, ended up spending 13 months, gets out. By that time, they had a second child and Paula was about to tell him their third child's on the way when the cops come and tell her Danny's in jail for kidnapping. Danny said he never saw the girl, and he was selling vac vacuum sweepers at the time that she says that he saw her. He thought he was picked up just because he was Larry's brother. Now, Paula did have some trouble trying to uh, prove all that, but he was out on bond. He worked at a gas station, and then he was sentenced for three to four years. She kept up with him, but he was really hard on her. She stayed married to him for six years. Then they divorced in 1971 while he's in prison. At that point, she marries a guy named Bob Melos and had his daughter. They divorced after two years. Danny's released from prison just when Larry returned to Kalamazoo jail for a retrial. Paula knew Danny would do something stupid after seeing Larry again. Paula said Danny could not st stand the thought. Even during Larry's trial when all the publicity was going on, Danny hated this. He hated the thought that his brother was getting this publicity. And I knew that he was disturbed and confused enough that with Larry's appeal coming up again, he would not be able to handle this publicity thing. They would have to do something to put himself in the limelight. They were always, both of them, they were both very, very competitive. 
Danny gets out of jail in 1972. March 18th or 20th, someone saw a year-and-a-half-year-old boy crying, his hands and shoes bloody. So they searched for his mother and found her body behind the independent elevator company building. 29-year-old Patricia Houck, in the book she's called Cynthia Coles, she had been raped and then stabbed to death with a knife. Her husband had reported her missing. She had disappeared the night before while shopping. Her billfold was missing, so robbery seemed a possible motive. So then, July 17th, two decomposed bodies in a car were found by motorcyclists in wooded area about 12 miles from Kalamazoo. The car was traced to a Chicago-area man that had reported his daughter missing. She had gone with her roommate to see her brother in Ann Arbor, but they had never arrived. Fingerprints identified 19-year-olds Linda Clark and Claudia Bistrup. In the book, they're called Cornelia DeVault and Nancy Hart. One was a daughter of a Chicago police detective. An autopsy wasn't able to find the cause of death, but ropes around their necks indicated they had been strangled. The girls had been murdered more than a week before they were found, so chances of pinning down leads were grim. The gas tank was full, so it was surmised that they had encountered their killer not far from there. On August 5th, 18-year-old Patricia Fearnow, called Jennifer Curran in the book, went missing. A month later, September 5th, 28-year-old service station attendant Danny Rains and 15-year-old Brent Coster, called Carrie Weiser in the book, were arrested and charged with the murder of two Chicago women. Brent and Danny worked together at the gas station. So investigators had checked gas stations near where that car was found. They noted Danny's criminal record for pointing gun at the couple and abduction of a 17-year-old student, and they learned that Coster often hung out with Danny. Danny claims he's innocent. Coster spills the details. So now we're going to get into the details of each of Danny's murders. Danny said that with Patricia Houck, he had seen her go into a Topps department store and had parked his blue Corvair van next to her car to wait. An hour went by, and she came out and put her son into the passenger seat. As she came around to the driver's side where the van was, Danny got out, walked up to her, and pulled a knife. She panicked and fell into the car, but he pulled her out and forced her to get into his van, where he bound and raped her. He left her bound with her hands in front of her as he forced her into the front. He tried to strangle her, but she fought him, scratching his face. They struggled so hard that they fell out of the van to the ground. Rain stabbed her in the back, but he said that, quote, it didn't seem to have much effect. So he gave the knife a twist to wreak more damage. That did it, he claimed. Somehow the child had gotten out of the car and was standing near the van crying. Danny figured the boy wouldn't recall anything because he was too young, so he left him alone. Finally, Hauk stopped struggling and expired. I mentioned they found her behind the independent elevator company. And there's a part of me that as I was reading this and she's at a shopping center or she's at a a department store and they find her body next to this elevator company. I was wondering how crowded or how empty and how how empty would this place have to be for him to be able to abduct her and rape her and attack her right in the van, right in the parking lot? To me, it seems like it would have to be a pretty empty parking lot or really he had a lot of fucking guts to do that in a place that might be pretty public. I actually found, uh, I looked up this independent elevator company and I found where it had been located. It it dissolved, I think in like 2001. So I looked at the address and it is, it's kind of in those, you know how some of those business complexes are back kind of in, they curve back and kind of middle of nowhere. So they're kind of a little bit isolated. There's some, they're fairly close to each other, but there's big enough parking lots and trees that you could see where maybe if it's not, it wouldn't be quite as busy. It's not like being at a shopping center or even like a plaza 
So I could see where maybe it's a little more secluded that he would be more likely to get away with it. Coster said that Danny bragged about committing that crime and suggests they start doing it together. He said we could grab a girl, rape her, take her money and valuables and kill her. So they put together a murder kit of knives, trash bags and ropes. Coster was six feet tall and he was called Stretch. Since he was, he was only 15, but he looked like he would be able to subdue anyone. He said once they parked in front of a movie theater for four hours looking for an opportunity, and they often went looking for female hitchhikers. They passed the time talking about sex and killing women, although Coster said that, Rain, that Danny initiated most of it. Now, the details on Clark and Bidstrup. On July 5th, Danny was at work at the Sprinkle Road service station when Linda Clark and Claudia Bidstrup pulled in around 1.30 a.m. to get gas. Coster filled the tank while Danny popped the hood, both of them preparing for what they were going to do. So Danny dismantles a wire to the spark plugs, making the car sound as if it had a problem. He then had the girls drive the car into the bay so he could have a closer look. When they did, the two men pulled knives. Danny told them not to scream and they wouldn't be harmed. He told them to get into the back seat and he drove the car into the back of the station where the lights were off. Coster and Danny tied them up. One of them kept watching the girls while the other attended to customers. Coster saw Danny assaulting Linda and said later that Danny told him he'd also had sex with Claudia. Coster then had sex with Linda in the van. Danny put Claudia back into the car and Coster killed her there because Reigns had told him it was time for him to, quote, taste the medicine. He attempted without success to strangle her with a rope, so as she struggled to live, Danny assisted and together they killed her. Then they turned their attention to Linda, and Coster managed to strangle her on his own. They put both women into the back seat, covered them with a blanket, and Coster drove the car himself to a wooded area. He poured gasoline over it and lit a cigarette. He placed it on the floor of the car and left before he even knew if it ignited. He hitchhiked back. Danny then showed him money, two rings, a pair of earrings, and some photographs that he had taken from the victims. When the car was found, the girls' purses were empty of money, the police and press considered this incident could, could be related to the Halk murder. All of the victims had been similarly tied, but the girls from Chicago were too decomposed to determine if they had been raped or how they had been killed. He goes on to talk about Pamela Fear now. So they kidnapped her on August 5th. As they were riding around, they saw her hitchhiking on the Western Michigan University campus, which is common for college students to do then. They picked her up and used a knife to take her against her will to a wooded area. Coster tied her up in the back of the van, covered her with a sleeping bag, and lay next to her as Danny drove. Over a period of six hours, both of them raped her, and when they were finished, they tied her up and took her to another wooded area near a lake. Coster claimed that while they drank beer, she had a glass of wine, and by the end of the day had finished the bottle. When they went to a third area, Fear now started to scream and struggle against her bonds, so Danny slugged her hard in the stomach. That failed to subdue her, so Coster placed a plastic bag over her head to suffocate her. Danny saw a police car, and Coster ran. Danny called Coster later for a ride home. The next day, they came back and moved the body to a more secluded place, at which time Coster found two ropes around the victim's neck, and he remembered only placing one there, so he thought Danny had added the second one. He tells the police about... Patricia in October. So they had not found her, but they didn't know anything about her. So on October 17th, they found her. It was mostly skeleton and she was found less than a mile from the double murder. They used her jawbone to ID her. Coster said that Danny instigated and that after all that, he broke it off with him because he was afraid that Danny would kill him. Danny had said he wanted to go steal a car and go to Florida. Coster did have a previous record, so they tried him as an adult. What was said about Coster 
His memory was vivid and the police and prosecutors were thorough. Before the trials ended, everyone in the city must have carried images of women forced to dress and undress, repeated rape in in Reigns' van, strangulation with nylon cord, and suffocation with a yellow plastic bag. Coster was charged for the two 19-year-olds, Clark and Bistrup. Danny was charged for Clark, Bistrup, Hauk, and Fearnow. This is a very important note. When Danny was taken in, Larry was being held in the county jail too. They were in cells next to each other. Security cells number one and number two. What are the odds that these two brothers that the second brother had killed like almost 10 years after the first brother and they just happened to wind up in cells right next to each other, at least for a time. Danny in prison. They said that he was cooperative and they didn't know what to make of his good deeds. He drew, he had drawn a picture for every operator that handled prison phone calls for Christmas. There were 45 of them. Everyone was suspicious. Danny complained about it. The best way to get out of prison is to make some trouble. If you're nice all the time, they think you're conning them. He was also involved in a prison pen pal program with a Catholic school in Ashford, Ohio, that got publicity in several papers and he seemed satisfied. But he was not in contact with his own family. So again, we see these weird juxtaposition of their actions. He was involved with another woman and married her, but then they separated. So when he's talking to Hilberry for this book, when he talks about violence, he said Paula would slap him, but that I was taught to be too much of a gentleman to hit women. I never struck a woman. About infidelity, he said, I had sex with her. Let's put it that way. I didn't have an affair. I just had sex with her. I had a strong sex drive, but I don't believe in hurting women. I don't believe that what's given away for free should be taken by force. This is the one thing that angers me so bad at the charges that I'm charged with. He says that cops hear he has a strong sex drive and assume he's a rapist. Then he tells a story where they fought and he got physical. (laughs) He hit her in the collarbones, which threw her on the bed. He jumped on her, slapping her until his rage was gone. Later, he hit her again after a fight. He punched her in the face. Then he keeps talking about what a gentleman he is. He then sends Hilberry an article about a 19-year-old in prison charged with attempted rape in Kalamazoo that hung himself in his cell. Danny said that must be the person that really committed the crimes that he was in for. He just, he kept insisting he was not, he did not do those crimes. The case against Danny weighed heavily on Coster's statement, but he, Danny says that Coster had a history of theft and delinquency, so maybe he wasn't the ideal witness. But... His detailed testimony was corroborated by evidence. The blanket over the bodies of Clark and Bidstrup was ID'd as Danny's. The rope used to strangle one of the victims was found to match rope in Danny's stepdad's boat, rope that Danny had given him. A cop who stopped Danny at what turned out to be the time and place of Fairnow's murder had seen him coming out of the woods acting suspicious. Conrad Hilberry says, My own impression is that he is urgently and persistently rethinking the past going over the events in his mind and rearranging them, changing them so the story comes out the way it ought to have been rather than the way it was. The guards also found a torn up paper in his toilet asking if um, if they know any women that would take $500 to say that they were with him on the night of Houck's murder. He said someone else wrote it to frame him. So this is uh, Conrad Hilberry's assessment of Danny. Danny is no psychopath. Even from the written transcription of his talk, it must be clear that he lacks the cool certainty, the heedless power of his brother. Less has been written about rapists, and certainly rapists do not fit into one psychological category or any neat group of categories. 
So then he goes on to talk about the aggressive aim classification that Danny would fit into if he was the rapist. This classification is often skillful workers like driving a truck or working in a garage. The rapes come in a series with strangers as victims. Sometimes it happens in the offender's automobile where victims are brought by force or threatened. And I quote, the sexual assault is primarily an aggressive, destructive act, not the expression of a sexual wish, but an attempt to humiliate, dirty and defile the victim. The degree of violence varies from simple assault to brutal, vicious attacks, sometimes resulting in the victim's death. It's pointed out that he that they tend to gravitate to women in relationships where they're expected to be passive and they hate it. If the girlfriend or wife is unfaithful or attracted to other men, they displace their rage onto other women. So that fits his relationship with Paula. He committed the rape and murder after a recent divorce, and Larry was back in town with Paula visiting him. That type of racist tends to show compassion afterwards and try to make restitution for the crimes. Quote, their behavior in prison is quite at odds with the primitive, brutal acts of sexual violence that brought about the commitment. This is strikingly so in Danny's case. So when they're not sure why he would be drawing those pictures for the operators and he even would like decorate for Christmas and he would do these charitable things seemingly that are selfless. But if he follows this classification, you can see that's his way of trying to make up for what he did. And so it seems like how can that reconcile? But that's exactly what it is, is they have these attacks, but then they they have some remorse over them. I will note that Danny said, Larry was the only companion I had most of my life. He's the only true foe I've ever had in my life. He's the only competition I've ever had in my life. So I think this is interesting because he says, Larry was the only companion I had. So that has, that tends to have a, a positive connotation. So usually when you hear companion, you tend to think, oh, it's someone that you enjoy spending your time with. It's someone that's supportive. And they, like I said, they have a positive. But then he goes to, he was the only companion. He's the only true foe. He's the only competition. So he goes from having a, a, a pretty positive <laughs> connotation to two specific foe and competition. Now, competition isn't inherently negative because you can have healthy competition, but he does say foe. So you've got positive, negative, and then kind of a neutral. So you can see it's a very complex relationship where maybe maybe they did feel that they had some some things in common. They did have some kind of attachment to each other, but they also had that very negative competition also. Larry in prison. Larry hated hearing his name and the negative connotations with it, so he wanted to change something, change it to something intriguing. So again, like I said, the book was called Luke Karamazov, but he really changed it to Monk Steppenwolf. The reason he chose Monk Steppenwolf, this is, I haven't read it, I don't really know much about it from the article that I found it from. It's uh, based on a novel by a German author, Hermann Hesse, and he impressed. He was impressed with the book. It was published in 1927. The novel follows Harry Holler, a middle-aged intellectual in despair, views himself as the, quote, wolf of the steppes, estranged from a world that he cannot understand. In essence, this novel explores the idea that an individual is comprised of a multitude of selves and via a transmigration of souls can pass into several forms. All of life is a compromise of some type and there are several chances to keep get, trying to get it right. Another thing is, is he also really, he wanted a name that would make people impressed and might make them think a little bit. So he wanted something that he felt fit him better because he didn't like the, 
the negative. He didn't want to be labeled with that negative name. He didn't feel that he fit that name. He wanted something that would make people just do a double take and be en- enticed by him. When he first went to prison, he was 19. So everybody was scared of him in prison because he came across as this big badass. He's 19 years old and he's killed five people. So it's a big fucking deal. He was able to actually go among anybody he wanted, and he became a kind of reformer, and he he would keep people in line. He became a clerk in recreation, and a superior heavily relied on him. He learned how to use the system and control it and use it to his advantage. It's very interesting when you read the parts about the things that he did in the prison system and how that worked out. Again, I really think you should read this book. It's very interesting to see the way that he was able to manipulate people and the way he was able to fit himself in there and, and again, kind of find his comfort level there where he was, he had his own little kingdom. He seems unsure if he meant to commit the murders or not. Sometimes he felt like he was programmed to do it. One of the things he says about it, and I quote, My plan all along, throughout the whole shoot 'em up time, was to die. This is the end of the world. There's nothing else for me in the world, so hell with it. But I felt the world owed me a last supper, and the last supper would be provided by whoever I felt had enough money to provide my needs. When he's speaking of himself, he says, What strikes me as strange is how I could so calmly kill someone, yet I'm very reluctant to hurt someone. That's what I wonder about my mind, how it handles that transition. He doesn't feel guilt. He didn't feel guilty for the dead because they're dead and they don't feel. He does worry about the women and kids he leaves behind because they're still alive to feel pain. He's very careful to kill and not maim. Quote, I think it's not good. But on the other hand, it's somehow acceptable in a sense. In other words, I'm not a barbarian, not a fiend. I am not a cruel and heartless person. I did what I felt I had to do in a compassionate way. Now, I could have been another Danny. I could have put plastic bags over people's heads and suffocated them and all that kind of sick shit. I could have stabbed them to death, which is horrifying. That's sickness to me. That's degenerate. It just blows my mind that he can totally justify, yes, I kill, but I don't hurt. So you have those, those qualifications put in there that makes him able to handle doing what he's doing. And it's the, we see the competition. Well, yeah. I'm a killer, Danny's a killer, but Danny's a worse killer because he hurts people. He does horrible things. So I'm I'm better than Danny because we are both we're both killing, but he's killing in a really gross, terrible way. So I'm still better and I'm a better person. Hildeberry comments that Larry's almost free of internal conflict. Quote, he can express anger, contempt or admiration, directing his attention with a strange purity to people and things outside himself. It's an important source of his power. He wastes no energy on fear, regret, or uncertainty. On the other hand, watching Danny, one is convinced, I believe, that a tremendous amount of energy is expended on internal exchanges. On the other hand, watching Danny, one is convinced, I believe, that a tremendous amount of energy is expended in internal exchanges, one part of his mind trying to prove something to another. It's as though the past has left enormous boulders in the back of his head, and he now must exert great effort to ignore them, to divert attention away from them, or, if possible, to think them out of existence. So he points out that Danny rambles and talks and talks, but then he's frustrated that the conversation is one-sided. Hilberry says... Here is a man trying to keep the conversation going to establish an exchange with other people to make some sort of restitution, but he's so driven by his own needs that his talk comes out in 20-minute parcels. His listeners are ill at ease, and he's drained and lost. 
A note from Paula about Larry and Danny is that they couldn't see themselves objectively. Quote, neither of them could ever look in a mirror. Hildeberry's basically posits that sibling rivalry, rivalry possibly caused Danny to kill. And it might have even triggered something in Larry. And that's what started him killing. There's some debate about that because Larry never really said, I went out to kill because I was mad at my brother. So I think that that Larry just went out and killed people. And we know that he's dramatic. We know that there were times he tried to kill himself and and all that. So I think that he just had this pent up rage. And so he went and killed people. I can see that maybe Danny did could have had a reactionary position where he saw his brother did those things. Larry hasn't really been part of his life because he's been in jail. Well, then all of a sudden, Larry comes back to Kalamazoo. And I could see maybe that would trigger something. And his wife had divorced him and was with someone else. And not Dan, not Larry, but she was with someone else. So he could have felt out of control. And so I could see maybe it makes sense that for him it was sibling rivalry. Or it could just be, it could have nothing to do with it that Danny did things. They had such a competition. I can see a thing where he'd say, oh, well, he did that stuff. So I can do that stuff. You know, that maybe there was some kind of justification. And he may not have planned it. And maybe it just happened. But I... I think that it's likely that he did do all this. Again, it, it makes it a little difficult difficult that you have one 15-year-old witness saying these things and telling, filling in all the blanks because Danny never filled in any blanks. He was just like, I don't know any of this. I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do this. So everything was from Coster's point of view. Although, like I said, they did find some evidence like the the blanket that apparently had was proven to belong to him, the rope that... Apparently, he had given his stepfather. I think that it's he probably did do it. And especially when he's like, oh, I never would hit. But then I did punch her once. I, I think that he probably was guilty. Although I do kind of wish we had a little bit more. I wish he would have said more and we knew for sure. But the fact that Danny said, well, I know where this body is. And he did have that record of, of abduction and, you know. Well, and then plus like the whole thing where he said that there was that piece of paper in the toilet that was like, hey, if you know anyone that any woman that will take $500 to say that. And he says specifically that that say they were with him on the night of Houck's murder. I don't understand why any anyone else would have written that to get him in trouble. It's possible. You know, I don't know the pettiness of jail interactions. So it's possible. But it just seems to me like that seems that seems little meh. There are people who don't believe that Dan Danny did it. One of the references is The Murder Game by Catherine Ramsland. And I've mentioned her before. She's done, she has a bunch of books in, that I've, I've mentioned. She says, her view of it, I'll quote, Sibling rivalry can be blamed for a lot of things, but the stakes are rather high for serial murder. There is likely more to the story than the English professor managed to extract. When you read the book, you can see how Larry played him. One wonders what a more sophisticated analysis might have revealed. It's clear that the two brothers had a firm love-hate relationship, had experienced only warped or absent parental guidance, and had developed no sense of prosocial purpose. It's also clear that their father was an arbitrary, punitive role model who disliked and abandoned them. Yet, Larry killed instrumentally, targeting only men, while Danny seemed driven by lust and anger, targeting young women. They might have been rivals, but neither actually won because both were losers. So I think that's an interesting thing to point out. I think maybe she's being a little hard on the English professor 
Conrad Hilberry. I feel like he was very balanced and intelligent. I felt like it all made sense what he said. I do see where she's saying that if it was in competition, would they wouldn't they both gravitate towards the same target? And instead of like one like she said, Larry killed targeted men, basically went on a spree, you know, traveled and and killed days and months apart. But then Danny just targeted women. Although they both actually they both did do it several months apart just in a few months. So they were both kind of on a little spree. But one targeted men and one targeted young women. And Larry never raped and Danny did, if that is true. It wasn't like, hey, I bet you can do, I bet you wouldn't do this. And so they go do it. It wasn't like they, like a lot of times you see the the, the siblings or the family members that can goad each other on or couples that goad each other on. But that wasn't this case. They were completely separate they never discussed it together. And while Danny said something about the reason that he first tried to kidnap that couple is he wanted to get Paula's attention. And maybe, you know, that goes back to he wanted her attention away from his brother. But on anything else, he never, I don't know. It's um, it's a kind of complex thing. It's, it's kind of confusing. So I think it's a, a very compelling thing to think about. On that note, I'm going to end with a quick story <laughs> That was very intriguing that Larry told. In the book, I believe the chapter is entitled Mike and the Chimpanzee. Before he killed Gary Smock, the teacher, he was picked up by Mike with the chimpanzee. Quote, he had a Chevy panel truck. The back was almost all caged and Zippy the ice skating chimpanzee was in there, as there would be. He had been on Ed Sullivan. Mike had just completed a European tour with the ice capades and was on his way back to Chicago. And a quote, we're traveling along and right away I get to thinking, hmm, probably got some money. Well, we better stick him up. So he winds up pulling a gun on him, taking his money and ring, makes him get in the cage. Finally, Mike convinces him to let him out. They get food. Larry pays for it. Even gives Mike the ring back since it was his dad. So <laughs> Mike has been robbed at gunpoint, put in a cage. He calmly convinces him just let me out. It's smelly back here. I promise I'm not going to do anything. They eat dinner together. Larry uses the money that he had just stolen to pay for the guy's dinner that he just stole from. <laughs> and then Mike's like, look, this was my dad's ring. He gives him back his dad's ring. His, and I quote, Larry said, he's so good. I just decided to trust him. He goes to use the bathroom, taking the chance that Mike will drive away. Mike was waiting in the truck for him. He gives Mike the gun and goes to sleep. Mike says he threw the gun away and Larry gets mad. Then Mike, Mike goes out of his way to take Larry where he needed to go. He gives him half his stuff, including the gun that he hadn't really thrown away. Then Mike says, I hate to ask, but I don't have any money to get back to Chicago. He asks for about $40. Larry says, so I give him $40 and tell him, I want you to do me a favor, Mike. I don't want you to turn this in until two weeks from today. Can you do that? Mike hesitates because it might hurt his insurance claim, but he agrees. It turns out he waited to report him for a month or two and maybe never to the insurance company. This just story just blows my mind that there's so much going on that he gives a guy the gun and goes to sleep. Hillberry points out that this is this is a very interesting, that he thinks the reason that Larry put up with it, it was a very interesting exercise of control and he was Larry was very intrigued by Mike playing this game 
So he felt comfortable enough. And I think I think it was that let's see who's going to do almost like a scientific. All right, let's see what he's going to do here. Hmm. He doesn't do what the normal person would normally do. So let's let's take this a little further. Let's see how far we can go with this. And when Mike consistently keeps proving that he's doing the opposite of what's expected, then he's like, OK, you're all right. And so he ends up giving him some of the money back that he stole from him. The guy even gives him half of his stuff, including the gun. It just... It blows my mind. It's just such an amazing story. And I'm hoping it's true because it's very intriguing. I mean, and Zippy, Zippy the chimpanzee is just hanging out the whole time. And I'm going to end that episode with the phrase Zippy the chimpanzee. Thank you for entering the lab. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats. <laughs> <laughs>